Urborg is a swampland of bogs and weed-choked waterways bordered by thick, green vegetation and plagued by insects. The ash-filled sky makes the sunlight dim and gray. Old ruins are buried under the vines and moss, some indication of the long history of this land. Some feature the heavy shapes of monolithic Thran structures, but most of the ruins have the spiky, organic look of Phyrexian remnants. In the mythic past, Urborg was the seat of Croesus, the primeval dragon of death. Legend has it that Urborg was once only the name of a city upon the isle. This hellish scene was controlled by the lich Nevinurl, who was at war with Bogarden. Little is known of the war as it predates the Ice Age, but legend states that Nevinurl was outmaneuvered the city of Urborg was swallowed by a volcano that tore up the ground directly beneath it. What doesn't grow dies, and what dies grows the Tarmogoyf. Ermagerd, it's to Urborg Lurgoyf! Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I am your host, Andy. I am here, as always, with my co-host, Anthony, future philatelist Maddox. I, not by choice. (laughs) (laughs) uh, You have something in common with your father, which is that you like to collect little pieces of paper that are worth more money than they should be worth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In Mm -hmm. his case, it's stamps. In your case, magic cards. Thank you for uh, starting us out on a strong note of my father's demise. <laughs> I wasn't, I didn't, okay. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That's not really what I meant. <laughs> Could you ever see your way to collecting something like a stamp that uh, is just purely for collection's sake? I was thinking about this because I definitely like collecting magic cards. I definitely own cards I don't intend to play anywhere. But also I could never imagine myself collecting a thing with zero utility at all. You just have it and you just put it in the you put it yeah. in the binder and you close the binder and it's like, done, yeah. we did the collecting." It's like I play magic, so it's some future world where well, maybe I'll play one of these cards. Art and other aesthetic objects that you uh... I wouldn't call it collection. Okay, interesting. Interesting. I I accrue them. They stick to me like uh, garbage to the big Katamari Damacy ball as I roll through life. Mhm. Yeah, I mean this is a big and and very disparate topic we shouldn't go into too far but i do really respect my father's collecting of stamps actually a lot because he's he's a lover yeah. of history and of art and the way things are produced and when he, he's very intentional I about when it. i talk or when you know when i've met other stamp collectors they're just like yeah i'm just checking off the boxes and trying to complete this task and he's very much interested in the history and the you know, you know what the stamp says about uh the the human race and how it connects us to it and it's this like little physical manifestation that connects you to all that history which i think is very cool Wow, what's it like to admire your father? I would never know. (laughs) (laughs) Anthony, we can't get into daddy issues on this episode because this is our Dominary United Cube Community We'll save that for next week. Yeah, that's next week's episode. Uh, And that means we are joined, of course, by the perennial guest for our Cube Community Set Reviews, and that is Parker. The domain appreciator has entered the chat Lamascus. That is me. Have you heard about how great Domain is? You said in the Discord that you think that Territorial Kavu is your favorite card in my entire cube, and I was shocked. 
you know, I typed it from the heart. I didn't really <laughs> stop to consider um, with my brain the truth of that statement. And then my brain caught up, and it turns out it is a true statement. Territorial Kavu is my favorite card in Bun Magic. Well, I'm glad that your heart and your brain are so in tune with one another. I've been thinking about cutting that card. I don't know. I guess uh, we'll get to, we get to discuss Domain maybe when we talk about these cards from Dominar United. But Andy, uh, before we do... I know where you live. You cannot cut Territorial Kavu. Uh, it is true. You do know where I live. So I got to keep that in mind. Does that mean you're just going to show up at night and put it back put in it the back cube back every cube, night? Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm at 361. How am I at 361? Weird. I'm not sure how that happened. We got to talk about all the results of our community survey as well as the uh, copious number of hot takes we got i appreciate everybody stepping up to the plate to deliver on the hot takes i'm really grateful for that i think it adds a lot of texture and dimension to the episode to have other people's opinions in here as well uh parker before we get into the actual results of the survey you got to tell people how this thing works like you always do and you're so good at thank you i practice every morning in the shower our survey respondents provide us with two pieces of data. They give us the cards that they're testing, and then they rate those cards on a subjective scale from one to three, whatever criteria they want, whether it's the art or the power level of the card or how appropriate it is for their environment. So this is not a measure of objective strength or objective quote-unquote cubability. It's just whatever criteria the designer chooses. And then I take them and, with the power of Python, analyze the data, and so that's what we'll be discussing today. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. Uh, I guess you could cover the fact that this is a really popular set as far as cube designers are speaking. Yes, that is true. For Dominaria United, we have broken, nay, shattered all of our previous records for survey <laughs> engagement. We have 350 responses just for DMU. We also have more than 50 responses for the commander set that accompanies it. So that is huge. It is more than Modern Horizons 2. It is more than Innistrad Midnight Hunt. It is more than 10 times the number of people who responded to our very first survey, Throne of Eldraine. So this is a really big milestone. I'm really pumped about it. Um, and I guess people are just really hyped for Dominaria United. And a lot of that growth is really just uh, us getting a little more popular, a little more visible, our audience growing in terms of the response numbers. But it's not just response numbers that this set is really popular. It's also just people testing a lot of individual cards. That's true, Andy. In Dominaria United, the median designer who responded to us is testing 10 cards from the set and has given two cards of those 10 a rating above 2.5. That's a really strong rating that signifies that designer thinks two cards are going to stay really long-term for their cube. And that puts... Dominaria United on roughly equal footing with sets like Kaldheim and Streets of New Capenna. Those aren't record setting in terms of how many cards people tested, but they are definitely middle of the pack above average. It also just seems like from looking at the results, there is kind of like a, just a linear progression of cards people are excited about. Oftentimes there's like a big steep drop off when we look at the results where we can say, well, you know, the top eight cards are really popular, then it's kind of a big step down to the rest of the set. But as you go down this list, it's just like, you know, a 1% jump every time, pretty much all the way down to like, down to the bottom almost. It's just uh, people are excited for a wide variety of cards in this set, I assume depending on the context of their cubes. 
It's also funny looking at the results on the graph. So for every one of these surveys, we take all the results and we graph them with the average rating on one, one hand. So, you know, the cards that are super highly rated up at the top and the cards that people are not as enthusiastic about at the bottom. And then the, the consensus. So how consistent those ratings are uh, on the, the x-axis. And usually what we see is a little bit of a trend from the bottom left. So things that most people are not as excited about, but there's not as much consensus up to the, the top right, uh, where people are really excited about a card and everyone's confident about it. Here, everything's kind of just like bundled in the middle, except for this weird couple other clusters and a couple outliers. So it's definitely an interesting set in that regard as well. Yeah, it is true that not every combination of rating and consensus is possible. It's just the way the statistics work for this. So there's like some envelope in the middle that forms the only possible responses. I think we should talk about the top five cards for sure. But then otherwise, I think it'd actually be more productive for us to kind of jump around to cards that maybe appeared somewhere in these results that we didn't expect, or, you know, just to put up some weird numbers that we can uh, actually have something to talk about. Sure, I can start with the card Founding the Third Path. Founding the Third Path was tested by only 14% of our respondents, but it is the most popular saga of Dominaria United, and so... I wanted to mention it. Founding the Third Path costs one in a blue. It has the read ahead ability, which is choose a chapter and start with that many lore counters, add one lore counter after your draw step, skipped chapters don't trigger, sacrifice after the third chapter. <laughs> I can't believe I read all of that. It's so and much there's still more. Chapter one, you may cast this instant or sorcery spell with mana value one or two from your hand without paying its cost. Chapter two, target player mills four cards. Chapter 3, exile target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard, copy it, you may cast the copy. I think Chapter 3 is the reason that 14% of our respondents have given this card a rating of 1.9, and it's because that last chapter has some echoes of Snapcaster Mage, in my opinion, and I think that's what is, you know, drawing people to it and, and causing them to evaluate it highly. I do like that chapter two really sets up chapter three, and I also like that chapter one provides you a rebate on a spell and, and kind of cheapens the overall mana that you're paying as this card resolves. And I actually, like I wasn't going to test it when I was reading through the responses and doing the analysis, but now I'm like kind of curious about it. And if I open one in draft, I'm gonna give it a try. I am also curious about it. When this card was spoiled, I didn't know what to make of it, and I still don't really know what to make of it. The ceiling here seems really high. You mentioned that the first chapter can kind of give you a rebate on the mana you spent, but it can give you a 100% rebate on the mana you spent, right? You can right. essentially, on turn two, if you were already going to cast an instant or sorcery, at sorcery speed, obviously, at, at a speed when you can actually cast this saga, then you just get to play the saga for free. It gets into play, you then cast your two-mana removal spell or something, and you you know got to play the saga for essentially no mana. Uh, yeah, it's sort of like just having a, a regrowth with suspend, too, in that case, that you paid zero mana for. Uh, yeah, basically. Uh, and then the, the milling, I think, is relevant in, in a lot of environments. Also, it's worth noting that first chapter can fix your mana. I watched a yep. couple Aspiring Spike videos, at least clips of Aspiring Spike videos, where he was trying this in Modern, specifically in a Reanimator deck, because you can cast Persist uh, with that first chapter, and then milling is obviously relevant in the Reanimator decks. So, I don't know. This card, I think, does have a really high ceiling. Uh, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, how often do I... Am I on turn two in a game going to be casting a instant or sorcery at main phase speed? And I 
kind of came to the conclusion not that often, especially in blue. A lot of my blue spells are stack interaction uh, or similar. Uh, I think a lot of times maybe you'll get to like get a free cantrip with this, but in that case, you're in my environment only getting back one of those two mana, which I think makes it a lot worse. I don't know. I, I was also thinking about a card like Mission Briefing, right? Because, I mean, the, the comparison to Snapcaster Mage, I think, is relevant, but Snapcaster Mage has a just really powerful card, really high ceiling. And I was trying to compare it to a card that is similar, but maybe not quite as pushed. And Mission Briefing, I think, fits that definition. It also kind of acts as a Snapcaster Mage without a body. It also mills you a little bit, but you can play that one at instant speed. A little more intensive on the colors. It does take two blue pips. And uh, that's not a card I see people playing a lot in their cubes. It's not one that made the cut in my own cube. So I'm not sure how this is going to land, but I wouldn't be surprised if this ends up being a performer in some constructed format and as a result, getting a little more attention from cube designers eventually. Andy, I see it as primarily a blue-black or like maybe blue-red card where you're primarily casting removal on turn two. In both of our formats, which are pretty fast, I think that's actually pretty reasonable and it's often worth main phasing a, a removal spell because you're going to take three damage next turn regardless of whether you cast it during your opponent's main phase or during your own turn. And then I think chapter two, in addition to giving you char- card selection for chapter three, it's also a little bit of like a dark ritual considering how much mill and escape and other like graveyard as resource mechanics we both run. So I I think like the whole package is is... More appealing than it looked at first glance. I mean, it does a lot for two mana. I mean, like the dream, I think, is, you know, you're playing some blue-black control deck, like you said, Parker. You play it on turn two, you Doomblade your opponent's threat, then you mill a bunch of cards to fuel your eventual treasure cruise or whatever, then on the third turn you get to Doomblade something again. Uh, That's just a ton of value if you get to pull all those uh, things off. And then as a top deck, because it has read ahead, you don't have to, you know, wait a super long time to get that value if you just top deck this thing you can play it right on chapter three and just yep. immediately regrow an instant or sorcery essentially and uh play it at that moment so yep. yeah i don't know i think uh it's it's definitely got a lot going on i'm still not going to be testing it until someone proves to me that this uh, card is consistently doing that kind of stuff instead of being kind of clunky in, in most draws and sometimes having that high ceiling because uh, it is a lot of complexity cost and feels a little bit it's a little bit hard to navigate into a powerful game state to me I think it's kind of funny how sagas, I think, are just one of the most beloved card types of recent magic, right? They're just, I've, I've never seen anybody say a bad thing about them. At the same time, I feel like often in these surveys, they just don't come up that highly. And I wonder if it is because they're a little bit difficult to evaluate because they provide advantage over time. And also it's a, often a number of sort of disparate little things that add up to a, to a full package that maybe that's just more difficult to evaluate. So when people are looking at a set initially, they're not as high on them. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. I could see that being true. Train Master GT's hot take. I think Archangel of Wrath is probably the greatest non-Phyrexian sleeper card in all of Dominaria United. This card basically combines all of the best parts of Siege Rhino, Flame Tongue Kavu, and Baneslayer Angel into one glorious package full of super modality. I like how it can go into Boros and Orzov decks while retaining almost all of the functionality that it would have, in a Mardu shell. I think this card looks great and more people should give it a look. Next card I want to talk about is a card that we got two separate hot takes about but is all the way down here at only 9.4% of our respondents testing it and that is at Leyline Binding. This is five and a white for an enchantment. It has flash. It also has domain. This spell costs one less to cast for each basic land type among lands you control 
And when Leyland Binding enters the battlefield, exile target non-land permanent, blah, blah, blah. It's Oblivion Ring, uh, instant speed with the cost dependent on the different number of basic land types you have in play. And the potential ceiling of this being a single white mana for an instant speed Oblivion Ring, which is obviously a very, very high ceiling. This card, I think, is uh, making some waves in Constructed. I see people talking about this a lot as maybe the most exciting card in this whole set for Modern. And, you know, certainly with things like Triomes and, uh, you know, very greedy mana bases, uh, this can get very, very powerful. High rating, uh, only 9.4% testing it, but a rating of 2.2, which is uh, quite high for a card that far down the, the testing list. Cryonicity's hot take. My hot take is Leyline Binding. And the reason why I think this is actually a sleeper pick is because if you're playing a two-color deck, then it's going to reduce its cost to three and a white, which is a little overpriced. But if you're running fetches or duels, you'll have incidental color and basic land types among lands. And this can even get as low as a one-cost card, um, which is kind of wild. I'm personally running Triomes and Duels and Fetches, so for me, this is a no-brainer. Parker, I know you have a lot of mana fixing, a lot of it with, with basic land types. What do you think about Leyline Binding? Are you playing this in your own cube? I definitely am. I I don't have my hands on one yet, but I plan to play it, and I think it will be quite strong. I expect it to cost two or one mana most of the time that it's played, and that's partly because I support all 10 triomes and a lot of fetch lands and so it's trivially easy to kind of unlock those additional colors but that's a decision i really like enabling in my environment not only because it makes your mana more consistent but actually it's like a separate decision tree where you can evaluate is it worth playing this one or two color outside of my mana base triome maybe i should use an example let's say i'm in a naya deck and i want to put leyline binding in my deck I might be willing to play a blue triome or a black triome in order to make it cheaper. That compromises the consistency of my aggressive Naya mana base. And so that's a crunchy kind of risk-reward decision that I really enjoy. And I think Leyline Binding will contribute to those decisions. This card is in some ways a lot more explosive than perhaps some cards people have been comparing it to. I've seen people talk about uh, comparing this to Prismatic Ending, which on the surface kind of makes sense. Like Prismatic Ending is another removal spell that gets better the more different colors of mana you have in your deck, right? But the thing about Leyline Binding is that, you know, if you play a tapped Triome on turn one and the second turn you fetch up a dual land that is the other two colors, this is a one mana O-ring on turn two, right? This can very quickly be extremely efficient and get to like the peak of its uh, power level. Whereas you're not going to be able to have the five mana to dump into prismatic ending on turn two ever because you need to actual spend the mana. It's not just a matter of counting those basic land types. So yeah, I think this card's really good. And for those that are on uh, a lot of triumph support, those that do like having the three or four color decks show up in their environment a lot, this seems like a really good payoff for those sorts of decks to me. And I want to add that even though this is only 10% of our respondents, because we have just so many respondents this time around, that's still like 30 people. You know, it's as, as many people as ever responded to our Eldraine survey. Okay, you All keep rubbing that in, Parker. Binding. Everyone has to start somewhere, okay? <laughs> hey, I, you know, I'm just trying to give some context. Yeah, I mean, this goes really deep, this, this whole list of responses. And Leyline Binding is just one example of that. It's found a niche audience, and, and they're excited about it. Train Master GT's hot take. 
Leyline Binding is pretty cool. In formats with lots of typed lands, this card has the potential to be one of the strongest removal spells. However, it does require a little bit of setup, which means that its power has to be something that's a little bit worked for. I think this is a nice dynamic that a lot of designers and drafters alike will enjoy. I found looking through, especially the comments uh, left in the survey, that people found Domain pretty polarizing, or I should say, Domain is pretty polarizing among the people that are, are playing cubes, designing cubes. A lot of people were just saying, you know, Domain is not for me, it's not something I'm putting in my cube at all, and some people thought it was fantastic and they really like this sort of interaction you're describing of building your mana base to try and support it. So that's another quirk about the way that we're collecting this data, is the people that are rating it are also self-selecting as being interested in it already. So right. the cards that are going to receive low average ratings are going to be things that are sort of appealing, maybe they're flexible, but eh, there's some reason they're not quite uh, as exciting to people, whereas this being this card that only makes sense in certain contexts is still going to be highly rated because it's only going to be, it, it's more clear what context is going to fit in, right? I think one other card that's not one of the top cards, but it's really interesting in the way that it stands out is Marius, Scholar of Antiquity. This is three mana for a 3-3, three, three, a legendary creature, Elf Artificer. It has tap an untapped non-token artifact creature you control to add green, and tap two untapped non-token artifacts you control, exile a top card of your library, you may play that card this turn. So this has kind of been compared to Urza, but in green-red, which is kind of a wild card. Really high rating for a uh, relatively low number of testers, too. So the people that want this card really want it. I'm imagining those are basically cube designers that have artifact-themed environments or really, really deep artifact archetypes. Right. So it's one of the... It's it's not very high in terms of number of testers. Only 3% of, of the people that responded. But 2.6 rating, which is really high. I think it's maybe the second, top, second card just to a couple others. Yeah, I mean, it just does something very novel. I think it has an extremely high ceiling and something that you don't necessarily see in this color pair a lot. Uh, so I think that, yeah, like you're saying, there are a lot of cube designs that have these kind of niche interests that maybe this is going to be a great payoff for. I'm having a hard time just imagining what these cube environments might look like or what the kind of deck looks like that really wants Maria. I mean, the fact that you have to tap a non-token artifact both to get the mana and also to you know play the cards off the top of your library. I'm wondering what the non-token artifacts in these decks are that aren't like creatures that you'd rather be attacking and blocking with, so you're probably not going to want to tap you know sorcery speed or artifacts that already have activated abilities on their own, like your retrofitter foundries or whatever, that you also probably aren't going to want to tap to this because they have so much more valuable abilities stapled to them already. So I guess uh, this is a card that fits in environments that I'm not uh, not totally familiar with, and I'd love to see what those decks look like sometime. I could definitely see it fitting in a lot of commander and multiplayer cubes, as well as things that, that are specifically true. just leaning into artifacts in general. Uh, maybe even like combo-y environments. Maybe you have your Pili Pila and things like that. But we do publish the full data set, so we can actually go look at the specific decks, I mean, the specific cubes that people are including this in. I'd be curious. Joe's hot take. Karn Living Legacy is active garbage. That said, if you want to make him more playable in your cube, you should definitely be running a full set of signets instead of talismans, as they will allow you to filter the mana from his power stones into something actually useful. If you manage to make a cube where Karn is playable, I am very interested Basically, any Planeswalker will win three turns after he comes down, and Karn is no exception. A card that jumped out to me is uh, one we talked about last week, Anthony, and this is a Tail Swipe. This is that instant speed, fight spell, an improved prey upon. Uh, it just makes two creatures fight, and if you cast it during your main phase, the creature you control gets plus one, plus one till end of turn. This is tested by 15% of our respondents with a rating of 2.1. I don't think it's 
hard to say this is the most popular green removal spell we've ever seen tested, and it's more people than I expected to see playing this card. So maybe they finally printed a fight spell that has a decent number of cube curators excited about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the uncommon green fight spell is not something we usually see high on these reviews at all. I even would have maybe thought that Bite Down, was that the name of the one that just punches? I think it's called Bite Down. I even would have maybe thought that would have been higher. Yeah, that's all the way down here at only 3.7% of our testers, uh, and that one can make your creature punch a creature or planeswalker for one more mana, still instant speed. I'm not even convinced Tailswipe is better than that. I mean, I'm a I'm a huge hoe for mana efficiency, but uh, I don't know. It's very interesting to me to see that card this high, and I'm curious to see if uh, some of these curators are playing you know, power maxed or very powerful cubes and have finally found the fight spell that uh, that fits in that environment for them. Probably an all-star in peasant cubes, I imagine, too. Yeah, that's something else that I think really stood out about this set is a lot of people specifically called out that this this set offered a lot to popper and peasant designs. Italian Andy's hot take. Hello, Andy and Anthony. I'm also Andy, a listener from Italy. And um, yeah, thank you so much for the content you're producing. I'm a big fan. It's my favorite thing to do on my drive work. I prefer you even over good music, so that's something. Um, and yeah, I wanted to mention Lenovo Lone Speaker. It's a card I dearly love already. I included it in many of my cubes, and I think it's just a great cube card overall. It's a mana dork that let, gives you, provides you the mana you need in the earlier turns. And afterwards, it attacks always for free. Uh, lands get more expandable as the game progresses. And I think it's honestly one of the best designed uh, mana dorks of all time. I really love it. And I was surprised that you didn't mention it. So my hot take, Lenovo Loam Speaker, is the greatest uh, and maybe one of the coolest uh, mana dorks of all time. Another card which I think does appeal to Popper and Peasant respondents as well as maybe some higher power environments is Tear Asunder. Tear Asunder is one in a green for an instant. It has kicker for one in a black. And its text reads, exile target artifact or enchantment. If it was kicked, exile target non-land permanent instead. It's tested by 19% of our respondents with an average rating of 2.2%. So this is kind of a split card between a naturalize effect that exiles and a four mana vindicate. However, I really, really love the incentive structure of Terra Sunder, and I'd even go so far as to say it might be my favorite design, just from a pure design perspective, of the entire set. And the reason is, Terra Sunder always costs green, and sometimes costs black. That is in contrast to other styles of gold cards. I mean, we have Assassin's Trophy, which always costs green-black, and we have a card like Deathrite Shaman, which sometimes costs green and sometimes costs black, or like it's an either-or. Terra Sunder is always green, which means it can be a sideboard card in green decks. It can be a main deck card in environments that do care about the artifacts that much, but if it's main decked or if it's sideboarded in those green decks, they're going to be incentivized to find that black splash because it does unlock some serious power. So they're going to bring in their off-color triumph. They're going to bring in their off-color fetch. They're going to bring in their treasure makers. And that's a way of producing kind of some free organic synergy in an environment in a way that 
doesn't have a big externality. It doesn't have a big cost. If you don't find the black mana, you still have a perfectly playable sideboard card or, you know, in some cases, a main deckable hate card. And I really love the way that kind of the floor is brought up by this design, but the ceiling is still there and it still invites a lot of really fun, synergistic recontextualizations of the rest of the environment. Yeah, I think everything you said uh, basically applies to all of the kicker cards in this set. And Terra Sunder is the most popular kicker card we see amongst our respondents. Uh, the right. next highest one is, uh, I think, all the way down there with Rona's Vortex, unless I'm missing one of them. I understand the appeal for this card. I will say, for my part, I have found the, like, disenchant with upside or, like, disenchant modal card to be not as relevant as I might have first thought in my cube. Maybe it's just because I have cut down on artifacts over the years and never really had that many enchantments, and so that effect is, like, truly a sideboard effect. Like, you really never want to be main decking a card like that in my own personal environment. But, um, yeah, I guess uh, all these cards, like, the come along with the disenchant with, uh, you know, side effects. I'm thinking of, like, the Wilts, the one you can cycle, the Nature's yep. Chant, one, one people are excited about that's either green or white. It's that hybrid card. There's also uh, the one that also can kill a creature with flying. I forget what that one's called. Broken Wings, maybe. There's, there's a couple of these disenchant cards that have this upside, and uh, they all are pretty uninspiring to me. And this one, I think, is kind of similar, right? Like, it's, I think, a sideboard card, perfectly reasonable, Four mana for uh, Vindicate, not fabulous. And I, if I were to put this card in my own cube, I would expect that would be the main mode. There would be rare enough that you'd want to exile an artifact or enchantment that you're basically playing a four mana Vindicate. But that obviously uh, depends on the environment you're in. Yeah, I, I should say it's not the right fit for my main cube, but I'm like so excited to draft the regular cube and splash the black part of Terra Sunder off of a bounce land or something. And I'm like so excited that I'm contemplating i'm like what what is another cube i can build that terra sunder will be perfect for that's how you know it's a good card when it makes you want to build a whole new cube and <laughs> I, I have that feeling <laughs> sometimes too for sure yeah all right i feel like i'm getting pushed to, to putting this card in my cube it is really interesting to think about how both the the floor and ceiling of these cards is really relevant what you think of as the main mode of these cards is really relevant and how much that changes depending on the context is really relevant i was thinking about this in the context of my own cube and thinking well really it's just the kicker cost that you're you're mostly looking for i'm usually going to be putting this in a deck because i, I want that and it's going to be sort of basically a green black card but actually in a lot of more you know faster maybe higher powered environments a four mana vindicate might just not be that p powerful so it actually might be more of just a disenchant with this extra text so these cards are really difficult and interesting to evaluate in different contexts i think i guess weirdly the card that i am thinking about when i look at terra sunder is baleful mastery that's the uh, removal spell from oh gosh whatever set it was where it has a two mana mode that uh, can remove a thing creature or planeswalker but lets your opponent draw a card or for four mana you can just remove it straight up and I was excited about that card initially because I was like, well, this is potentially very efficient if you need efficiency, right? Like if you are the aggressor and you want to get rid of a thing and kill your opponent before they can take advantage of that card they've drawn, then it has that really efficient mode. And if you're the control deck, then, you know, maybe four mana is actually fine because uh, you're going to go to the long game anyway. I find that card just really clunky and didn't play well in my own environment. The two mana mode was the mode you most wanted to cast, and the downside was too real. And at four mana, it was just a bad card. And so it's one of those cases where the modality did not make up for the the rate on either side of the effect. And I think in my environment, Terra Sunder would be the same. But uh, but as I said, that will definitely depend on the specific context whether or not these sides are worth the modality. Cryonicity's hot take. 
my next hot take is I want to talk about the two Selesnia cards, King Darian, the 48th, and a Johnny Sleeper Agent. Um, King Darian is definitely far leagues above what Selesnia already has to offer. It's a good value creature, and it provides some great protection. Uh, value with the sense that it's going to put some tokens down and make more tokens and counters, and it's going to buff everything else. And then you can um, sack it to protect all your tokens. So if you have a token theme, this is a very good one. And then Celestia Planeswalkers are very lacking, and I try and run a Planeswalker in every two color type, so a Johnny Sleeper Agent seems like the most interesting one that we've gotten in a long, long time. I want to talk about one more saga from this set. And that's the Elder Dragon War. This is two red red for a saga with read ahead. I'm not going to read that whole block of text again. Parker already did that for us. The first chapter, the Elder Dragon War deals two damage to each creature and each opponent. Chapter two, discard any number of cards, then draw that many cards. And chapter three, create a 4-4 dragon creature token with flying. I think this card is really powerful. Uh, it's really interesting that, you know, I think the four mana slot, especially in red, is just kind of rife with options from Magic's history of powerful cards that do a lot of stuff. And so this has a stiff competition to make it in some people's cubes, but the combination of a board wipe-esque effect, it's not going to hit big creatures, obviously, but it's going to clean up any of the small stuff that's still around, uh, some amount of rummaging, being able to refill your hand with whatever you need, and then getting a very on-rate card, you know, a four mana 4-4 four, four flyer is a, is a perfectly reasonable stat line uh, in almost any environment, depending on what other upsides it comes with. I think this card's really potent, and uh, I, I expect this maybe to uh, be more popular as time goes on, because at, at the time of the recording, we only have 11% of our respondents testing this card with an average rating of 2. So uh, that's a card that just jumped out to me as, I think, a very powerful option at 4 mana in red, if uh, if you're into that kind of thing. I wish I could skip only chapter 2. <laughs> just, just do the damage and get the creature immediately? Yeah. It's funny, I feel like that's a similar chapter 2 to what we see on Fable of the Mirror Breaker. I have felt that to actually be more relevant than I initially expected. I feel like there's often times where you are happy to just cycle one card to up your delirium count or give you one more card you can delve away with a Merktad region or a treasure cruise or whatever. So I wonder if like that's the kind of thing where you'd never really want to pay a card for that effect, but perhaps stapled onto another card that already has value on the other ends, value bookending it, it might actually be more relevant sometimes than you might expect. Yeah, I mean, casting Fable of the Mirror Breaking in some different contexts, you know, you're you're playing it really for the creature, both the creatures you get out of it. But I, I've always found that, yeah, it's like, oh, do you want to do, do some rummaging? Yeah, I, I've got some extra lands here. I've got some uh, spells that aren't quite uh, going to be relevant at this point in the game. Uh, it, it just always turns out to be relevant. Also, the art here, if people haven't uh, taken a close look at it, is actually wood burned into a, a large chunk of tree and then photographed for the card, which... Uh, it's in the the long history of sagas having this beautiful kind of uh, real craftsman art that uh, is then applied to the cards. So take a closer look at that if you haven't already. All right, next I'd like to talk about Baird, Argivian Recruiter. This is red-white for a legendary human soldier. At the beginning of your instep, if you control a creature with power greater than its base power, create a 1-1 white soldier creature token. It's a 2-2. It's being tested by 8% of our respondents with an average rating of 1.9, but I think it is a little bit underrated, much like our hot take submitter. Joe's hot take. Baird Argivian Recruiter, or however you say that dumb name, is probably the coolest Boros card we've gotten in the last two years or so since Winota. It pays you off for equipments, it pays you off for anthems, 
it pays you off for plus one plus one counters. How? By being a better version of Bitter Blossom. Boros as a color combination has always suffered from the fact that red aggro and white aggro on their own are usually stronger. However, I believe Baird allows people to attack the board in a unique angle and provides a scaling power threat in a variety of cubes that, a lot, that will let you commit to the, um, getting your opponent dead without overcommitting the board. If you want to try and get your drafters to play Boros for the first time in a long time, I recommend trying out Baird. The card is so cool. I mean, this this rules text, the fact that it works with equipment, it works with combat tricks, it works with plus one, plus one counters. Like, it's just such an elegant way to care about so many different things in Magic's history that I think it's such a cool design. Yes, and that makes it so much more modular than any prior Boros legend that I'm aware of, and even like the vast majority of Boros creatures in Magic's history. I did do a Scryfall search to confirm this. Most Boros legends care about equipment or attacking in a very like narrow way, and Baird is so much more open-ended and for that reason much more synergistic. Yeah, so, I think it's just such an elegant way to uh, in an abstract way, refer to a lot of things that do end up mattering in the Boros color pair. I didn't even mention auras. Auras also fall in this category. Mm. And obviously, you know, it's designed to work with Enlist. So if Enlist is also a thing that, uh, that would work with this thing. So, yeah, I don't know. This card is just so cool. And uh, I definitely could see it working in a lot of different environments. And it's potentially very powerful. I mean, 2-mana 2-2 two two is a card you'll play in your deck that wants to beat down, especially with the upside of potentially making a token every single turn. Yes, I think... A good comparison here is Clarion Spirit, where it, the card has potential to get value before your opponent has a full turn to interact. Baird, however, is multicolored, and that comes with some risk to the mana base, but getting an additional body, to me, means that it's worth playing even on turn 3, turn 4, turn 5, uh, especially if you're double spelling. That gives you more time to set up the trigger as well. So... I think Baird, even on turn five, it brings with it a human soldier maybe and can be double spelled with, you know, a three drop. I think that floor is okay. And the ceiling is you follow Champion of the Parish up with Baird or you follow up a Curd Ape with Baird and, you know, have played a green dual land and you're immediately getting three creatures on turn two. That's... Right, Curd Ape. I didn't even think about that. Static oh, abilities yeah. that affect oh, yeah. your base power. So you know I'm playing it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's I also a ton of no creatures, to you know, that uh, whenever you cast a spell, you get gets plus one, plus one, or right. other just ways to trigger pumping a creature, and this works. Oh, yeah. Planeswalker abilities that buff yeah. power and toughness. I mean, there's so many things that are going to count towards this, and it's going to be really hard to just write a, you know, scryfall filter that searches your cube for all those cards. You're going to have to, like, do the manual work of actually uh, looking through yourself. Anthony's eyes just lit up a little bit. He's trying to figure out if he can abstract <laughs> this into some sort of uh, query well, we can post Scryfall in the show notes. is also a, a very, very powerful... It, it's it's run by some powerful people, and they often already do, do like, pre-create those searches for things that have an obvious uh, sort of type of thing you're looking for, and we'll include them right on the page. For this one, it's not there yet, but it might be a little bit too broad to I actually write I think it's pretty it complicated to figure out yeah, all the yeah. cards that could potentially proc Baird. Train Master GT's hot take. Urbor Glorgoif is one of the weirdest cards in Dominary United, but it's also probably my favorite. It's rare that an inexpensive payoff card can also be one of the best enablers for a certain archetype. 
Urbor Glorgoif is capable of dumping six whole cards into the graveyard while also having a potentially large body. If drawn late, it can just be cast for two mana, allowing for easy double spelling when the milling is not sensible. This card looks like an absolute riot for Soltai midrange, and I'm excited to play it. I want to draw attention to one more hot take we got that I thought was pretty interesting. Uh, Machine Schooling pointed out that uh, Sheldred was their favorite card from the set. Machine Schooling's hot take. When I evaluate a card for cube, I consider three main things. The diversity of archetypes that would play the card, how interested the archetypes are in playing that card over other cards, and how the card recontextualizes other cards in the draft. That's why the card I'm most excited for in Dominara United is Shieldred the Apocalypse. Shieldred is a reasonably powerful creature that's solid in aggressive decks since it provides unblockable damage, but also in controlling decks as it provides a massive blocker and life gain. However, the main reason it excites me is that it totally recontextualizes wheel effect and life payment. Shieldred is perfect as both a stabilizer and combo piece in a wheel deck, making cards like Memory Jar much higher picks. It also offsets the life payment in black midrange decks, making cards like Dark Confident much less punishing. Uh, Shoulder of the Apocalypse is two black black for a legendary creature, Phyrexian Praetor. It's a 4-5 with Death Touch, and whenever you draw a card, you gain two life, and whenever an opponent draws a card, they lose two life. I want to call attention to this because I saw this card and my, like, I was immediately just like, okay, this is just a, this is just like a black good stuff creature, right? Like, the stats are good, the abilities are good, like, there's nothing wrong with this card, but... My initial reaction was that it didn't really have any interesting draft or build around considerations. It was just like a good creature with good abilities stapled to it. Some of the things that Machine Schooling mentioned in their hot take uh, are very relevant. Like if you have an environment where you have a lot of wheel effects or something, all of a sudden this can just like one shot your opponent with in combination with the Wheel of Fortune or something, which mm. I had not really thought about. Uh, it's also a pretty steep punish to a, car, a deck that's like a Xerox deck that's playing a lot of cantrips to try and find their answers. If they have to draw three cards to find their removal spell for Shouldred, they're taking six. I mean, that's a really substantial hit. So this these lines of text that I think are, I originally interpreted as like just very kind of boring, I think are actually quite dynamic, more dynamic than I originally thought. Yeah, I mean, it really uh, makes Brainstorm look very challenging. Oh, buddy. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, you, you untap. Hope, hope you have your, your one blue mana up when your opponent casts this. Yeah, you untap, draw for turn, still don't find your removal spell. Do you brainstorm and lose a total of eight to try and find your uh, your Doomblade for Shouldred? You can't Doomblade Shouldred. You know what I mean? Yep. Like the, the royal Doomblade, the, uh, the abstract Doomblade. Yeah, so I don't know. This card, I think, is maybe better than I first gave it credit for, and I think definitely more interesting and dynamic in terms of uh, deck building and gameplay than I first gave it credit for. It is seeing a little bit of pioneer play already, which I find interesting. Partly it's to hose opposing treasure cruises, like you mentioned, but then it's also just like such a huge stat line. It can block Bone Crusher Giant, for example, is an enormous creature, but Shieldred just shrugs it off. And then the life gain is also really helpful against aggro of, of all flavors. And so I'm like a little drawn in by that. And then also it's just so cool. It's like the whole it package is, cool. is really cool looking, and it's really tempting to be able to put a Phyrexian Praetor in my low-curving cube and not have it laughed out of the room. Yeah, I mean, for everything we just said about punishing your opponent's brainstorms and treasure cruises, equally rewards your own brainstorms and treasure cruises. I mean, if you get to yeah. untap this thing and cast your brainstorm and you've gained 10 life off your shoulder already that's gonna make it really difficult for any aggressive opponent to ever come back from that and honestly that life gain will keep me personally from ever touching this card with the 10 foot pole even if uh, most of the time it's just gonna get removed before uh, before your next draw step uh, I, i'm i'm too afraid too afraid of somebody brainstorming into treasure cruising and uh somebody's <laughs> combat deck having no answer for that do they have an answer for a four or five though i mean were they ever winning 
Yeah, I mean, you could remove a four or five. You should uh, curve Shieldred into Uro and then gain some life. Oh, buddy. Mm. See, that's, that's the thing. It's like even Uro, so much harder to gain eight life with Uro than Shieldred. <laughs> it's it's going to be, I don't know. I think this card is just swingier than I first thought it was. I Honestly, my first impression was like, it's kind of underwhelming for a Phyrexian Praetor. And the more I actually think about how this card's going to play, I think it is actually quite splashy and, and potent. Joe's hot take. With the addition of the Raven Man, I believe Black Discard is a powerful thing that you can run as an archetype in a, any cube. Between the Raven Man and Torak, we have much better payoffs than do nothing enchantments like Waste Knot. Torak and the Raven Man also both provide discard enablers themselves, either in the kicked or activated abilities. When you play Powered Cube with lots of combos, the only way to keep decks consistently balanced is to include large amounts of blue counterspells and black hand attack. While Wizards hasn't printed much good hand attack recently, Pilfer seems to be one that is almost on par. When you are running a high enough density of hand attack, payoffs like the Raven Man or Turok, or even Tarmogoyf, allow you to end the game after stopping or slowing down your combo or control opponent. I would highly recommend that most cubes, especially powered cubes, run more discard, and when you are running more discard, the Raven Man and Torak both become good playable threats. All right, shall we jump to our top six? All right, so our number six card in terms of just the raw number of people that are testing it, so not necessarily how high the rating is, but how many people are interested in this card for their cube, is Squee, Dubious Monarch. This is two and a red for a 2-2 legendary creature, Goblin Noble, and it's haste. Whenever Squee, Dubious Monarch attacks, create a 1-1 red goblin creature token that's tapped and attacking. You may cast Squee, Dubious Monarch from your graveyard by paying three and a red and exiling four other cards from your graveyard rather than paying its mana cost. This is being tested by 30%, so almost a third of, of the people that respond to the survey, and it has a pretty high average rating of 2.2 out of 3. We talk about cards that have some precedent, some card you can compare it to that is a somewhat known quantity, and people are, I think, rightfully comparing this to all the various Goblin Rabble Master variants we have gotten over the years. Though I think it's more different from Rabble Master than, say, a Legion War Boss or a Cranko Tin Street Kingpin is, in that it does have haste, it's going to start attacking immediately the, like, upfront damage output of a squee is uh, is much higher until you get uh, a couple turns in, right? If you can actually afford to attack with your Goblin Rabble Master and none of those tokens get removed, then Rabble Master outpaces it pretty quick. But that's rarely the case. And so if you're just looking for immediate punch, uh, this is the, the most explosive Rabble Master we've, we've ever seen. Plus, it's unique in having that recursion ability. We've never seen a quote-unquote Rabble Master that can bring itself back with a... Uh, it's basically... It's literally escape just without right, the yeah. keyword escape written on squee here. So yeah, I'm not surprised that it's being tested by so many people. It often is things that are somewhat known quantities that are variations on similar cards that end up near the top here. And this being sort of a variation on multiple known quantities, the sort of squee archetype of this little goblin that keeps coming back from the dead or is immortal in some way, uh, is also just very nostalgic and compelling in the comparison to Goblin Rabble Master. I think you could even compare it to just, you know, cheap threats with haste that come in and start doing stuff that is is a big feature of a lot of red decks in cubes so it makes sense to see this up here so highly phoenix of ash is another good comparison i also feel obligated to mention that one of our survey respondents papa zedrew responded and and gave 
a comment in their survey that was only squee in all capitals, and that really uh, was people a love to squee. Read. Squee's a very lovable character. I know, and this this art is charming, and so I yeah, <laughs> charming. It's just great. T- talking about the guy sitting on top of a. a- Big pile of skulls. Well, maybe you're looking at the uh, you're looking at the stained glass art. I think that one is very charming, actually. Oh, I'm looking at the pile of skulls. Actually. <laughs> okay, never, never mind. <laughs> He's just so nonplussed on that throne. It's it's great, and I'm there not is sure a, there's whether there's a pile of skulls in both cases. <laughs> yeah, is Squee dubious about his monarchy, or is it dubious that he is a monarch? I'm I'm unsure. I read it as the the latter, but okay. I don't read or any is the he stories, just a so I don't know. Dubious choice for a monarch. Hmm. You know, let's let's put away all of our mealy-mouthed uh, design-focused language. Let's have a nuts and bolts conversation about power level here. How do you all think, in as close to a vacuum as you can imagine, Squee Dubious Monarch is going to compare on power level to the exact card Goblin Rabble Master? You've stumped us. Not all at once. I think it's a tough question to answer. So it's first worth noting that the the clock over two turns if you can actually attack with all of your tokens and your creatures and uh, they all don't get removed. The Goblin Rabble Master, right, it's one on turn one and then on turn two you attack for four with the Rabble Master plus two tokens, so it's a total of six, seven. Seven over two turns. Squee is three on the first turn and four on the second turn. So uh, over two turns they are the same and then Rabble Master pretty quickly outpaces Squee on an empty board against no removal in terms of uh, actually actual damage output. I feel like the fact that Squee has to attack to accrue value is a, is a significant cost where, uh, you know, you might say that a Goblin Rabble Master in play that has to just throw goblins into combat that don't, presumably don't have good attacks, if the Rabble Master itself doesn't have good attacks, is also not generating any value, but there are ways to, you know, care about creatures dying or sacrifice creatures to things that I feel like come up a non-zero number of times that are not going to be able to be triggered with dupe with Squee. But the thing that's going to matter more often, I think, is honestly just having that engine, being able to throw an extra 1-1 into combat every single turn with the Goblin Rabble Master is going to make your other attacks better, right? Like, let's say you've got a couple other creatures in play that you're attacking with. Your opponent might have a 2-2. They might have a good block on your goblin token, so you might think you're just kind of throwing it to the wolves. But that card either tying up that blocker every single turn, or maybe not tying up that blocker because your opponent is forced to block one of your other more valuable creatures, means that you do get a lot of value off of just spitting these 1-1s out every single turn, where if you had to attack with a Rabble Master, that card would just trade in combat immediately, and you would lose your engine. I did have Squee in my pre-release pool, though, and I gotta say, uh, I think this has got to be the best Goblin Rabble Master on defense we've seen, just purely because of that escape ability. You know, this thing can come back any number of times, doesn't enter the battlefield tapped, it can just keep blocking uh, for four mana and a couple cards from your graveyard every turn if you need to do that, which uh, which will come up. So, I think it's, uh, it's like, more flexible than your average Rabble Master, than, you know, the actual card Goblin Rabble Master. Has a lower ceiling in that Rabble Master will just kill your opponent outright in, like, three turns most of the time, and this will need a little more time to do that. But if you only get one turn with your three drop before it gets removed, as is the case in a lot of powerful cubes, then this is going to get in for more damage and also represent that possible recursion ability. So... I don't know. I, I didn't put this on my testing list for my cube. I don't know. I just felt like it's so similar to Rabble Master, but Rabble Master has this kind of iconicness to it for me. And it must be said, if I'm looking at all of my red threes, Goblin Rabble Master is the one I'm currently least enthusiastic about for my own cube. So I would not consider adding another. The question is like, do I swap this one out for Squee if I want to? 
And at, at first, I was like, no, I could see maybe doing it uh, for the reasons I mentioned, but I think it's really hard to make the call on a power level perspective. I'm going to say, no, it's not as good as Goblin Rabble Master, whose primary job is being a fast clock on an empty board. I don't know. I see that fail case as being kind of similar, though. If your opponent has blockers and you're forced to attack with your other goblin tokens, you're losing your goblin tokens. And same with Squee. If you don't have good attackers, you're not making tokens. So it's it's kind of just similar in that case. And so I feel like it's it's going to be a little bit contextual on environment, obviously, but I think that ceiling of just having this whole extra thing that Squee can do of just coming back from the graveyard and generating extra value is going to be a pretty big game in a lot of contexts. You know, if you put me under duress and force me to choose one, I think I'm on Squee being stronger. Not in a vacuum, of course. I mean, the math just proves that Rabble Master is more damage, but in my format, at least, there's always a two-powered blocker, and in that case, I'm actually more interested in the recursion because Squee will be able to keep punching long after Rabble Master is in your graveyard. But then again, I gotta say, I, I just don't care. At this point, we have like five Rabble Master variants. We have at least five red three drops that are proactive at a similar power level to Rabble Master that do very different things. I'm thinking of Bone Crusher Giant. I'm thinking of Fable of the Mirror Breaker. Lelia, Phoenix of Ash. Season um, Pyromancer. Season Pyromancer. I mean, there's Bray as Apprentice if you want to go down the archetype route and do artifact things. So, like, I'm at the point where it's like, just choose your favorite play pattern. And if you want some graveyard interaction in red, then, hey, now you have Squee. And if all you care about is, for example, like, Sacrifice Fodder, then maybe you want Rabble Master's token every turn guaranteed. I do think it definitely comes down to whatever your taste is. The difference here in power level is going to be pretty negligible either way. I think it's kind of a toss-up and will depend a lot on context. You said yep. something interesting there, Parker, which is that you know the decks in your cube always have a two-power blocker, which raises the question, are either of these cards any good in your cube? Is Rabble Master any good? Is Squee any good if you can always expect your opponent to have a, a card to block it on the battlefield? And I would argue probably not. Like If that's the case, yeah. if, you're, if your environment is so dense with those kinds of creatures, then... Maybe you should be looking at a Phoenix of Ash that can attack in the air. It has evasion. Maybe you should be looking at a Lelia, which can grow out of blockable range relatively quickly. I, I think that's kind of the case for me. I think that's why Rabble Master is the, the card I'm least enthusiastic about in that slot in my cube right now, just because a lot of decks are going to have a, a card that can block it profitably. And so uh, it's, it's ceiling of bashing your opponent's face in in three turns is, uh, is really hard to come by. You're absolutely right, Andy. And I mean, I was a little hyperbolic. It's not always literally a blocker, but if not a blocker, then it's maybe a disfigure or maybe a Doomblade or a Planeswalker or whatever. Like, there is a lot of interaction in my list. And I do play Lelia and Phoenix of Ash and not Goblin Rabble Master right now. Yeah, that's just where I'm at. It's, it's contextually not as powerful as it might be in other cubes. The last thing I want to mention, just because we talked about every other angle of this card, is that this card is going to be, I think, significantly less good in constructed contexts than a card like Goblin Rabble Master, purely by virtue of the fact that it's a legend. So you're not going to see people, I think, slotting this into, for example, like legacy prison decks, because it's a legend. You can't get two of them in play. Whereas if you uh, do your turn one Chalice of the Void off of uh, Ancient Tomb and your turn two Rabble Master, you can do a turn three Rabble Master, and then your opponent gets dead real fast. And as we know, constructed strongly informs cube evaluation as well. So I think people might be a little low on this card because it won't be popping up in constructed anytime soon, mm, I don't think. That's a great point. It's still a good fun of at, in Legacy Goblins. Oh, I think it might see play in a Goblin Tribal deck, maybe. Yeah, but uh, you gotta have room for fun ofs. 
Yeah, and it, it's really interesting. You know, that, that specific, like, red prison deck in Legacy is built on the assumption that your opponent will not have anything in play, right? That's why Goblin Rapid Master is so good there, because the whole point is to lock your opponent out of doing anything and kill them as fast as possible so they don't have any time to get out from under the lock. And that's exactly what Rapid Master does. This much fairer in some sense, and, you know, much better in some sort of combat mirror or, like, grindy game, but that's not what that deck's trying to do. It's trying to just lock you out and uh, kill you as fast as possible. Joe's hot take. Squeed Dubious Monarch is the best Rabble Master printed in the last six years. While it's not quite as quick of an aggressive clock as Rabble Master itself, unlike Lelia, Nagila, or any of the other ones since, it has recursive value, which means that it's a better late game engine. It's very similar in my mind to a Red Planeswalker, but with a much more aggressive tend. He doesn't even need a keyword for his powerful ability, which is always a bonus when you're make, curating a cube with this many unique complicated effects. Our next card in the number five slot for popularity of Dominaria United, it's Guardian of New Banalia, thus proving Andy extremely wrong from last week. The Guardian is one and a white for a 2-2 human soldier. It has enlist. It has whenever Guardian of New Banalia enlists a creature, scry two. And it has discard a card. Guardian of New Banalia gains indestructible until end of turn, tap it. It is tested by a third of our respondents with a rank of 2.1 on average. It is the second coming of that... In Hallow Blade, whatever it's named. <laughs> you a know, card that Parker that clearly loves. Anthony and I yeah, talked about this card know. somewhat at length in the last episode. So, Parker, I want to hand it over to you. What do you think of uh, Guardian of New Banalia? Oh, boy. Um, I'm not sure I have too many thoughts. In my Head format, empty. it's going to no be thoughts. attacking into a Watch Wolf a lot of the time, and that's definitely a downside. So I'm, I won't be testing it. That said, I think the incentives more broadly and in a design sense are pretty pretty neat it's nice to be able to make your game pieces relevant in the late game and that's what enlist does it also makes you know any extra lands in your hand relevant even into the late game by discarding them and it provides value that is somewhat orthogonal to the aggro game plan of killing your opponent as quickly as possible i really like aggro tools which give that orthogonal value because it means the aggro player can have game and stay in the game for longer and it kind of decreases the non-games that can characterize linear aggro game patterns. Is this actually bad in the face of Watch Wolves, you think? I don't know. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's just my (laughs) rationale for ignoring it, but... Well, because the reason I ask is because I, I think this card is not good unless you are enlisting something onto it, right? If you're not doing that, it's just a two mana two two that you can discard a card to make it destructible, which I think is which I mean that's a card in a lot of contexts. In some contexts, yeah. yeah, I think in the in the context where we're comparing it to season Hallowblade or something, uh, it's a lot less exciting. So in the case you are enlisting something onto it, you don't need to be a watch wolf to threaten to trade with this thing in combat. You could just be any old two mana two power creature that can threaten to kill it in combat yeah and the fact that this in a deck with watch wolves now all of a sudden you're attacking with a five two that can be indestructible i think that's going to be a a relevant clock yeah Yeah, Mm. i mean i think especially 
or where, where this might not shine as much is if there's a lot of tokens or small creatures in the environment where you maybe don't want to discard a card to essentially turn that into a removal spell for a one or two power or whatever random creature. It's got to be a two power token to do that, though. Otherwise, it's just chumping either way. True, yeah. But in the case where most of the creatures are on board are bigger creatures, discarding a card to turn into a free five damage to something, that's much more relevant. So I could actually see this performing better in those kinds of contexts. You're right. I'm I'm eating my words from minutes ago. I I do think it would be strong in my format. And this <laughs> reminds me that the reason I'm not testing it is actually much simpler. It's just because I didn't want to introduce the enlist rules text into my format. Totally fair. I find the summoning sickness line to be a real like it's the worst part of enlist, if you ask me. That's definitely um, the you know, the rain on your parade that uh that yeah. can't be a summoning sick. And I don't know, I would even take, like, if we just rebalance the numbers to let it be, you know, the same strength as far as a supercomputer is concerned, and if it were to read more elegantly, I would I would much prefer that version. But yeah. who knows? I mean, I could be convinced if this sees a lot of standard play or pioneer play, then that means my drafters will be exposed to the rules text and it won't come as a surprise to them. And in that case, I'm a lot friendlier towards this card just in terms of its, uh, you know, overhead logistically. Something else that's interesting about this card is quite a few people pointed out in their comments of the survey that they're specifically interested in this as just a white discard outlet, just uh, as a way to be able to get cards in the graveyard in white, which is, is interesting that this is doing a lot of different things for different people. If that's the case, might I recommend that Hallowblade? That one's much cleaner for sure. This has got a lot more text on it than Season Hallowblade does. I gotta say, as the weeks go on, and it's only been a few weeks so far, I just get more and more excited about this card the more I think about it. It started as me thinking, eh, it's probably not as good as Season Hollow Blade. Do I really want to add another card that's like similar, but, you know, more complicated? To now where I feel like, I think this is like a, a significant amount better than a Season Hollow Blade in any kind of board stall, which is the situation where maybe a card like that is most potent. I find myself pressed with the question of, how many of these white two drops that can be indestructible do I want to run? I've already gotten some grumbles in the past of uh, opponents that were, you know, playing some removal heavy deck and were like, my, my opponent just played cards that I couldn't destroy. And it was like, it didn't feel like my removal spells didn't matter. It doesn't happen often, but I have gotten that complaint. And so I don't think I would just mm. drop this in alongside a Danto Vanguard and Dauntless Bodyguard and Season Hallow Blade. I would probably swap one of those out for it, maybe, but we will see. You're also on Mother of Runes and Giver of Runes, right? Yeah, I like those ones. Okay, yeah, that might be another part of the problem. Do you think you could alleviate that by tuning the removal of the format? I know you're on Disfigure, which gets around indestructible. I wonder if there are other spells kind of in that vein that could just be kind of lateral swaps that improve the matchup against white aggro like that. Well, funnily enough, you know, the, the paradox of the cube designer, I have also gotten the complaint. I drafted a Danto Vanguard in Season Hallowblade, and my opponent had nothing but disfigures and deadweights. These cards don't do anything. And so it's like, all right, well, you know, yeah, a lot of things can be true. And uh, sometimes, yes. the, sometimes the cards don't break in your favor, and that doesn't mean the environment is necessarily flawed. And I know for your goals, uh, you're actively trying to punish, in some ways, the, the person who's drafting nothing but removal and control pieces. Or at least you don't want that to be a defining um, characteristic of the games. Like all my stuff got destroyed every turn for the entire game and I got to do nothing. Usually that's a bad guy that is okay to punish a little bit. Hmm. I got to think about whether or not that's actually something I want to punish. I definitely don't want 
stally games, and I guess that is kind of a way to define a stally game, but if that's your whole game plan and you're also like taking up a planeswalker or something, I feel like I'm more okay with that. I gotta think about that. I gotta think about that. Mm. While I'm thinking about that, let's move on to our number four most popular card from Dominari United. It's Evolved Sleeper. This is one black mana for a creature, human. It's a 1-1, and it has pay a black. Evolved Sleeper becomes a human cleric with base power and toughness 2-2. It has one and a black. If Evolved Sleeper is a cleric, put a death touch counter on it, and it becomes a Phyrexian human cleric with base power and toughness 3-3. And it has one black black. If Evolved Sleeper is a Phyrexian, put a plus one plus one counter on it. Then you draw a card and lose one life. That last ability, important to note, you can activate as many times as you like. I've already seen people on Twitter saying that they have watched their opponents not activate their Evolve Sleeper multiple times when it would have benefited them. So do not forget, you can just keep putting counters on this thing and drawing cards if you get to a state where that is advantageous. In fact, you can uh, activate any of these abilities as many times as you want. Okay, okay, buddy. (laughs) Uh, This is being tested by 38% of our respondents with an average rating of 2.2. Much like Squee and Guardian of New Banalia, this card does have some precedent in your Figures of Destinies, your Students of Warfares, your Wardens of the First Trees, uh, cards that people perhaps have played in their environments and have some expectations around how they perform. And uh, I'm still excited about this card, and it seems like most of our respondents are as well. Well, not most, 38% of them. Okay, fair. Uh, It seems like a lot of our respondents are as well. Most of the people that are testing it are excited about it. Parker, I know you have Warden of the First Tree in your cube, or at least you did, because it was yeah. playing it in your cube that uh, that made me re-add it to my cube after it was gone for, I don't know, like three and a half years. Is this a card you're also looking at for your environment? I am looking at it. It is another one of those aggro pieces that has, most of its power is in aggression, but then it also has some value that's orthogonal to aggression, which is the kind of Phyrexian re- arena trigger thing. And that's really neat because it gives the aggro player a decision tree that's branching and it sometimes leads them away from pure aggression, which leads to a greater variety of game outcomes and you know different decision trees for both players. So I really like that. On the other hand, a death touch counter Ugh. just makes me cry inside. And it's actually wild that this puts a death touch counter on it, but the activated abilities don't put any... Like, you know, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. like level up as an ability is very similar to this, but it has a level counter, which helps you remember what mode it's on. It's always been a pet peeve of mine about the Warden of the First Trees and the Figure of Destinies of the World that you just have to remember which step it's on because there's no counter to indicate it. And of all things, they have a counter just to indicate that it has Death Touch, which I guess is going to effectively serve as a counter for the fact that it's at the second level of its leveling. But it's uh, mm. definitely... A strange combination of rules text in some ways. Yeah, it's just a nightmare to remember which stage it's on. I mean, I don't know. You're right that the death touch counter does help as a mnemonic. And then when you put a 1-1 counter on it as well, you know it's on stage 3 plus or whatever. I don't know. I'm, I think I will play it if I get my hands on one. I'm just aware of that slightly additional burden of complexity. Yeah. You mentioned this was primarily an aggro card, and I think you're maybe right. But to me, the way the value I see in cards like this and like Knight of the Ebon Legion, for example, is that mm-hmm. it has the possibility of being an aggro card if that's what you want at that moment. If you know you're in game two against your opponent that you know is a control deck with a couple board wipes, you can just play this on turn one and then just keep leveling it up and say, "I'm going to make you answer this before this game continues." Right? This is going to put a lot of pressure on you until you uh, show me you can answer it. 
But it also has the opportunity to not be an aggro threat if you're in some sort of mirror or a situation where you don't want an aggro card. This is just kind of inevitability. I I love that this card specifically, I think, will play really interestingly in a like blue-black tempo or maybe even control deck where you can hold up counter spells, you can hold up removal spells, and if you don't have anything to do with that, with that mana because your opponent didn't pose a threat that needed an answer... You just keep dumping your mana into your Evolve Sleeper, and uh, it just takes over the game, draws cards. Uh, it's got a really, it, it, it's a really dynamic game piece, I think, that can fit into a lot of different kinds of decks. Which, uh, as one of our hot takes to test, is actually a downside for some people. Like this card is just a good card; it goes in every deck. It doesn't like push your draft in one direction or another. So uh, it definitely depends on what you're looking for. But uh, I, I like that aspect of this card that I feel like, even though it's a one drop, it's a one drop that you might run in your otherwise very controlling deck. Bill's hot take. Hey, Bill here with a hot take on Evolve Sleeper. Like most people, I think the card is very good. However, I find it to be quite boring. It doesn't have any synergies, really, with most other abilities. And the text box is quite large for something that's very boring. When I want something that goes in most decks, I want it to be simplistic, but good. Yeah, that's a good point. It's... I think we're saying the same thing from maybe different angles, Andy, because I, I agree with everything you said. Yeah. Next up, we've got another black card. It's Cult Conscript for one black mana. It's a 2-1 Skeleton Warrior. Cult Conscript enters the battlefield tapped, and it has unactivated ability. One on a black. Return Cult Conscript from your graveyard to the battlefield. Activate this only if a non-skeleton creature died under your control this turn. So, just a flavorful way of saying, if something else died except for this Cult Conscript, you can put it back into play for two mana. You know, it, it didn't really strike me until just now. We've always talked about how cards that have some existing precedent, existing comparison point, always rank higher on our surveys. And every single one of these top six cards oh, uh, yeah. either compares directly to a very popular card in cubes or a whole class of card in cubes. And Cult Conscript is in the tradition of your blood-soaked champions, your grave crawlers, uh, the skeleton one, the other skeleton one, I can't remember the name of. That are these one mana two ones. Yeah, gutter bones. Thank you, Parker. These one mana two ones that uh, have some recursive ability and some combination of inability to block or enters the battlefield tapped and some terms under which they can be returned to the battlefield. I'm surprised to see this so high at 44% of our respondents just because I didn't think that many people were playing black aggro in their cubes, I guess. I always read that as kind of an unpopular deck in a lot of cubes. So this is higher than I expected. I I did a bad job last week guessing what cards I thought would be at the top, and I'm kind of punching myself about the uh, the number two here. I could have definitely guessed number two if I had thought about it, but I never would have guessed Cult Conscript would have been number three. Yeah, and this is being tested by 43% of the people that responded, and with a rating of 2.4 out of three, so both a lot of testers and a really high rating. I'm surprised as well, but I think maybe it's just that we've, or partly it could be due to the fact that we've just gotten a lot of similar cards like this uh, recently so this sort of like black aggro theme might just be a lot more viable these days. Yeah, that is true. It could just be there's enough redundancy now that maybe before if you just had Blood Soak Champion back when Cons of Tarki was printed, you're like, well, this card's cool, but there's not enough for me to have a dedicated aggro black deck. And then now that you have 
that and gutter bones and call conscript and gravecrawler and all these other cards maybe you could just do it now although to be honest and to your point they do have a lot of these like weird slightly different abilities like some enter the battlefield tapped some just can't block some you know have some other drawback to them and and i always get those mixed up just because it's like well is this tapped can i crew something oh wait no this one just can't block so i, I would almost say just like if that's something you're interested in you could run d- doubles of any of these cards or multiples hey the classic uh the classic jason approach of uh, multiple grave crawlers he's uh yeah. famous famous for doing multiple grave crawlers instead of grave crawlers at home of, of of many varieties you know i think the other component of this card's popularity is that it is an uncommon so therefore it is valid and legal for peasant curators that is That's true point, grave yeah. crawler and bloodsuck champion both rares i believe gutter bones wasn't uncommon if i'm remembering correctly is that also rare i think so no all the prior versions have been rare Interesting. Yeah, that's actually a relevant point. So uh, maybe this is the first time our peasant cubing friends get to access some of these recursive black threats. If we can take a brief interlude, I I think we of should course. mention the most popular popper legal card um, of Dominaria United. And that card is Talarian Terror. Six and a blue for a 5-5 five, five creature serpent. However, it costs one less for each instant and sorcery in your graveyard, and it has ward two. And I think this is a really unique or like uniquely well-suited control finisher for low rarity cubes and even like, you know, low, low power or budget cubes or things that are looking for particularly this kind of finisher because the ward two combined with the cost reduction means that you're often going to be paying only a few mana for this 5-5 finisher, and your opponent can deal with it, but they can't blow you out on mana. And that means that I think it's really balanced from both sides of the battlefield. So I think it's a really positive and healthy design in the control finisher space, and it's no surprise that it's the most popular peasant. No, I always get them confused. Popper legal card on the set. Yeah, I think this is a really potent payoff for any kind of spell slinging deck. I've seen plenty of people considering this card for the most powerful of uh, of eternal environments, so certainly it will make a lot of sense in any pauper cube that is trying to play powerful spells matter payoffs. I even saw Aspiring Spike again. And Aspiring Spike, uh, God bless him for testing all the new cards in Modern whenever he gets a chance. But I saw him trying Talarian Terror as a swap for Murktide Regent in a deck that specifically <laughs> wow. cared about keeping their graveyard full of spells and not delving them away for other reasons. And, you know, I don't think that was particularly successful. And I don't think this card really compares to Murktide Regent on raw power level. But the fact that that was even a thing that he felt was reasonable to do speaks to the potential power of this card. It's potentially a one mana five, five ward two, which is a lot of stats. We'd be remiss not to mention that it is actually tied with Urborg repossession for the most popular pauper legal card. Uh, And that's that uh, sorcery that can buy back one or two things from your graveyard, depending if you kick it for, uh, for green mana. That card, I think, is going to be really potent in pauper environments, which I often find come down to value rather than tempo and a, Two for one in your Golgari deck. That uh, that's going to be really, I think, quite quite scary in a lot of popper environments. Sure. So we'll jump back to the top cards of this set by popularity, and that brings us to the number two most popular card of Dominaria United. It's Ether Channeler, two in a blue creature, human wizard. When it enters the battlefield, choose one. Either create a one-one bird with flying. Return another target non-land permanent to its owner's hand or draw a card, and it's a 2-1. It's 
being tested by just over half of our respondents with the top rating of the set, 2.6 on average. And it is a card that Andy completely forgot when making predictions for these rankings. This is the one that I'm kicking myself over because I absolutely could have guessed this card. This card has cube designers are going to love me written all over it because uh, it references so many cards people have loved in the past and introduces this modality to an otherwise kind of iconic effect. These blue three drops that can either draw a card or bounce a thing and now also make a bird creature token. Pure power level perspective. What do you think of this card, Parker? How do you think this compares to Man of War or compares to Cloudkin Seer or any of these other kind of value-oriented blue three drops? Hmm, I don't know. My preferred comparison is actually Teferi Time Raveler. You know, you're on record, Andy, as saying it's your favorite bounce spell. I um, love it. It's a really good bounce spell. <laughs> Hot take. Yeah, and I, I think this is probably a similar design space here. I don't know. I think the main mode is probably the bounce. It can see play in control decks, in aggressive decks, in mid-range decks. Those will appreciate the flexibility here. So I do think it's strong. In fact, I, you know, I'll even say that I think it's the second best or first best bounce affecting cube, depending on how you feel about Teferi's static ability. That said, I, I don't particularly like it. I don't, I'm not one of those players with a sense of nostalgia for Mana War, the original ETB bouncer creature. And in fact, I was reading Dom Harvey's cube blog the other day. He writes on Riptide Lab, and he's also appeared on the show very recently. And Dom said something that I really liked, which is people who are still playing Mana War in 2022 are probably not interested in making gradual improvements to its power level. There's probably something going on there that has to do directly with Mana War's history or nostalgia or some other factor. And so it's excellent creature type. I was just for like example. Anthony continuing to play it just because it's a jellyfish. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I don't want to like say it's a strict upgrade to Mana War because the people who are on Mana War aren't playing it because it's the best Mana War these days. My original impression of this card, and I think I even said on the last episode that I think it's only very marginally better than Mana War. I think I'm going to revise that a little bit to say it's marginally better than Cloudkin's here, I think. And both of those, I think, are noticeably better than Manowar. I actually think the main mode on this in a lot of environments is going to be just draw a card. I like that it does have an option for tempo. If I am beating you down and I just want to bounce your thing and get in for more damage and I don't care about the fact that that's, you know, not a, uh, a two for one, then I can just bounce the thing to your hand. But I think if you're playing the value game and you're planning on trading with an aggro threat uh, with this thing and having it just die in combat and you just want to draw a card to keep the cards flowing, I like that modality. But overall, I don't think it's actually much better than a Cloud Conceer. Honestly, even in some situations, Cloud Conceer is flying. It's going to put it over the top, even though it doesn't have the other modes available to it. So I think people are perhaps overly enthusiastic about how good this is going to be in their environments because it does scratch so many itches that we know cube designers uh, have. I would definitely expect it will be, you know, fast forward to the retrospective of this set that uh, we are not going to see 50% of our testers still on Aether Channeler. But that's, of course, not necessarily a criticism of the card. I mean, cubes just naturally have churn. And I feel like this card, I, I think I said uh, either on the Discord or maybe Twitter that I feel like it has a little bit of, like, Charming Prince-itis. Charming Prince is not a card I'm particularly fond of. It's two mana. It's a 2-2. Two -two, it's modal. It's got, you know, a lot of things to recommend it. But at the end of the day, it's like, ah, do I really do I really want, like, a 
unexciting menu kind of modal card. Like, Anthony, you've been critical of the like menu style modal cards without any mm. real flavor to uh, why you have different modes. It just pick a thing, it does the thing differently. And uh, I think like this is kind of in that space for me. I'm not excited about it, but I also am like nowhere near putting Manowar in my cube. So I'm not really the audience for this card, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I disagree with you, I think, on power level, just because I think that modality is extremely relevant. And, you know, if you just think about, well, how often do you want to bounce a thing? Fairly often. But when you don't, being able to either draw a card or just add more bodies to have more blockers, or maybe you're actually getting in for damage, or you have some sort of blink synergy, and you're actually just turning this into a threat on its own by bouncing it a couple times and making a bunch of birds, I think that modality is extremely powerful. I'm personally not interested in it for a lot of the reasons you just mentioned, but I think that for a lot of cube designers, that is going to have lasting appeal. The bird mode is the one that is most... The biggest wild card to me. I'm not sure how often you're going to want to make a bird or how good that's going to be in different contexts. Like, even if my opponent is beating me down with one toughness aggro creatures, I'm not sure I just don't want to draw a card instead of getting two creatures for my three mana and just draw another land to keep my uh, keep my deck churning and not get stuck. Why would I make another blocker to destroy my opponent's creatures when I could draw cards and maybe I would draw a removal spell? It so could I be could anything. It could even be another creatures. blocker. <laughs> uh yeah, I don't know. I understand why it's a popular card. I think uh, on paper, the modality is really exciting. This is the kind of card I would be excited to put in uh, in my battle box if I was still maintaining that, I think, uh, for the for all the reasons that we mentioned. It's the fact that it's modal, gives you these choices. It can kind of play differently in different game states. But ultimately, I think for my own cube, it doesn't fit into any kind of blue deck that I'm trying to encourage in my environment. And ultimately, it's just kind of a little underwhelming on every mode for me that it uh, kind of like Terra Sunder doesn't make up for its... Uh, inefficiency with modality for me, I think. Train Master GT's hot take. I think Ether Channeler is going to be the single most overrated card in Dominary United. Mana War variants have started to show their age in higher power environments, as threats have started to cost less mana and enter the battlefield with more value. Even expensive threats tend not to be completely blanked by being bounced back to hand like they kind of used to in the old days. I don't think the extra modes on Ether Channeler actually make up for the fact that it's kind of inefficient at its most likely primary mode, which is going to be bouncing. I really don't want to be paying 3 mana to make a 2-1 and draw a card or make a 2-1 and a 1-1 flyer, at least in formats that bear resemblance to 2020's era constructed formats. Having said that, I do think this card looks very exciting for a low power environments that are sort of around the power level of a master set limited format. If I were building a lower power cube or battle box, I would be looking at this with great interest. But for a higher power format like mine, I'm going to make like John Lennon and let it be. That brings us to the number one most popular card from Dominar United. The card that I thought for sure would not be the number one most popular card. It is, of course, Cut Down. One black mana for an instant. Destroy target creature with total power and toughness five or less. Tested by 57% of our respondents with a rank of 2.5. More people are excited about this cheap little removal spell than I anticipated. Turns out it's not only your favorite card. It is almost 60% of... of uh, everybody's favorite card. Yeah, 60% of everybody's favorite card. I wonder how many of those people that are enthusiastic about putting cut down in their cubes have disfigure in their cubes and like it. I think maybe this is exciting because it's like new and shiny. And I mean, to be fair, it does have cooler art than Disfigure and a cooler name. So <laughs> I understand all those factors too. But I'm just surprised because I feel like those kinds of small scale removal spells that are cheap but can only target smaller stuff tend to not be as popular in Cube uh, as 
Well, people tend to not like them as much as I like them, I guess, is, is the best way to put it. And uh, unless the card ends up uh, being really popular and constructed, you know, a la Fatal Push, you tend to not see, you tend to see them skipped over oftentimes in, uh, in cube environments. But here it is, number one, cut down. And uh, I, I'm, I'm glad to see it, I guess. I think the card's fantastic. I think it goes in any number of cube environments. So uh, in some ways, it makes sense that it's up here. And maybe I'm just, I don't have a good grasp on who all the cube designers are out there. Yeah, that seems likely. I was trying to think of a way to drag you because, as you know, I've already written the uh, podcast blurb and it says Parker and Anthony drag Andy on air. Yeah, um, you got to do it. But I, I couldn't think of a good insult. And all the previous times I've tried to insult you, it just sounded mean. So, you know, I repent of <laughs> This is your problem, those. Parker. You're just fundamentally a kind and nice person. It's uh, it's hard to drag people for, for entertainment effect when you're so kind. Yeah. Maybe next time you drag me on air and I'll I'll cry afterwards, but it'll be good radio. Yeah, I, I like Cut Down. I think the art is completely awesome. Dominic Mayer is just on fire lately every card that they have drawn or produced is just amazing this is no exception and it's a real clean design it's as cheap as can be and i'm very pumped to play it now i was going to ask you because you're uh, you're captain watch wolf this don't kill a watch wolf are you still as high on this in your environment given that you have well it does kill a curd ape i guess that is kind of relevant you do have as many curd apes as you have watch wolves but uh, you're still excited about this, even in an environment with a lot of two mana three threes? Yes, that is correct. So you're right, it doesn't hit a Watch Wolf, but it does hit 118 cards in my cube. And I have that number so easily come to mind because in our article for Dominari United, we've included a search syntax so that you too, listener, can search your cube and filter it for the things that cut down will hit. So that's, you know, a respectable amount of the creatures in my cube do get murdered by cutdown. And so, yeah, it's, it's totally serviceable for me. And I guess maybe I'll revise what I said earlier. Maybe my perceptions are not so far off because while 57% is a high number, if we're comparing it to like Consider, which I believe had a 96% testing rate amongst yeah. our respondents, you know, this is still only a little over half of all the cube designers that are playing this. I would guess if I was the designer of all of the cubes that submitted it, I would put it in a lot more than 57% of those responses. So maybe I am still higher on it. And uh, just the fact that it's the most popular here doesn't change the fact that 60% high, but we're not talking about Usher of the Fallen. Is that what is the card? Usher of the Fallen. Yeah, yeah it was tested by like over 70% of the respondents to call time. Yeah, so we're not so... talking about Usher of the Fallen or consider numbers. It's uh, It's high, but it's not through the roof, which I would argue maybe it should be. So I'm going to go on record. Even though it's the number one card, more of you should be playing cut down than are. <laughs> I, I'll co-sign that, yeah. I think everyone should play whatever they want. Shut up, nerd. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone... Drag Anthony on air. <laughs> on the topic of, of great illustrations, everyone should be playing more Bone Splinters with their cult oh, conscripts yes. that they're so excited about. And I think if you get to sacrifice your cult conscripts to your Bone Splinters, you should get a special achievement because... Those two illustrations are sick together. That art is sick. I love that. What is the triangle of light in Cut Down? Does anyone, do we know? Mm. Is it a window? Does Joda... Maybe it's Joda's portal or something that he teleports people through. Maybe it's just a cool shape. That's also fine. I'm not picky as long as it looks good. And this card does look good. I think that's it for our Dominar United Cube Community set review. I think it's a very deep set for cubes. Like I mentioned, you know, we uh, there's a very 
I'm not. Gonna, I'm gonna say it. I'm gonna say long tail. Don't I, say it. I gotta Do figure not say out. It. Well, it's like uh, the curve, mm-hmm. the the line of uh, of testing yeah, we're of cards. About this uh, rank frequency distribution. Sure, the rank frequency distribution. It's uh, there's a lot of cards that are being tested by ten or more percent of uh, of our respondents. Like it looks like I don't know thirty ish cards. So just a, a a lot of cards here are interesting to a lot of people. And I think the fact that these mechanics are generally pretty flexible, Dominaria is a inoffensive and generic context where, you know, some people, for example, won't play a funky car from Kaladesh if uh, they don't want to put a cool car or helicopter in their cube. None of these cards, I think, are going to be off flavor for anyone's environment. And there are also callbacks to iconic magic cards from Invasion or otherwise. Uh, I think there's a lot of a lot to love here in this in this set. And so... Yeah, I think this is a deep file that uh, that people are maybe going to keep coming back to and keep finding more exciting cards for. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I've already, you know, gushed about Terra Sunder, and I feel the same way about domain designs, which encourage slight splashes in some cases. I think the play patterns and, yeah, the, the design intent of this set, the games that these game objects will lead to, are all really fun, unique, and, and generally just really interesting decisions are going to be generated by these game pieces. Well, that's it. Thanks, everybody, for their survey responses. Thanks for tuning in, and thanks for sending us your voice memo hot takes. We couldn't make this show without you, and I hope you love uh, listening to it as much as we love making it. It's always fun to get everyone's positions on these cards and kind of see where the whole community is at when a new set comes out. And it's uh, so we do have all these uh, results on the website now, so be sure to go check out the article, which will be linked on the homepage. You can see the cool graph and ranked list. And I think it's especially exciting as we're getting more and more responses to these surveys. Every new set, we get a few more people that it's not just the couple top cards that come out, but there's a lot more detail in that middle section as well. So definitely do go check that out. And thank you all listeners for submitting to this survey. I think we're going to have to do a whole survey for Warhammer 40k. Some of these cards in these commander decks, I think they really just like put a lot of design resources into those commander decks. I'm seeing like yep. very inventive, exciting cards that uh, I love. I almost never look at the commander decks, frankly, and see cards that I love. But even if not that many are going to go in my cubes, I'm looking at stuff and just being like, wow, what a novel, exciting, cool design. Like, I find myself a little bit blown away with the uh, the new design space they're showing off in this set where it's like, oh, yeah, they can just keep making cool magic cards. They have not they have not hit the bottom of that well yet. So we're definitely going to have to talk about that set in some capacity. So uh, stay yeah, tuned for be, that. It's going to be a lot of new cards. It's at least 130 so far. Yeah, I'm not even sure when it's entirely going to be spoiled, but there will be a survey up for that. So uh, if you're testing any of those cards, keep your eye out for it. And uh, we'll be talking about it on the show. I'm not sure if we'll do a whole perspective article. It probably will, maybe a little bit shorter than the past. We'll figure it out. The, the set seems pretty interesting and pretty exciting and uh, definitely is going to be an all-star among players with multiplayer cubes, I imagine. All right, and that's it. Thank you for tuning in. All of our music for the show is produced by DJ James Nasty. All of the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by Anthony Parker and I, thinking very hard about magic cards. I've been speaking into microphones about it. Thank you, Anthony and Parker, for doing that. My pleasure. And I'm sorry that I tried to drag you. <laughs> uh, Parker, I, I don't know what it is. There's something about me that people just love to to drag like i think it's maybe that people <laughs> just, can tell i can just take really it. confident kind of guy yeah it's it doesn't seem like you're gonna go home and cry after, right like Pe- people, people look at me and are like i'm not gonna ruin this man by making fun of him i just seem like i can t-, which i mean it's true i can't take it i grew up in a family where there was a lot of uh, playful 
playful and non-playful <laughs> playful verbal abuse yeah so uh so i, I can't in fact take it maybe people have uh, correctly picked up on that but uh but yeah you can make fun of me whenever you want i know it comes from a place of love i'll try i'll try all right we'll try it on for size next time <laughs> try being a real dick on see how see how it fits for you okay yeah <laughs> <laughs>